We turn now to the preaching of God's word. Our, our New Testament passage, which we'll begin with, is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 33. And our Old Testament passage today is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, I told Leslie about a week and a half ago uh, that I've never been so excited for a sermon series as I am for this one. Uh, I was so excited to preach last week that I, I had a hard time sleeping uh, the night before, and so I came out a little flat. I've got good news. I got a great night's sleep last night. Uh, so you're going to get it dialed up to 10 today, all right? So stand with me now for the reading of God's holy and and life-giving word, starting in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he would be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 to read verses 1 through 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And Lord, may you bless the reading and preaching of your holy scriptures. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine for a moment, if you will, that I am not preaching this morning. Imagine that I had you know, a pinch hitter, so to speak. And imagine that they started out their sermon like this. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And then imagine for the next 40 minutes or so, they use the word vanity about 40 more times, and they close with the exact same phrase that they began with. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
You might start asking yourself a few questions if that happened. Uh, the first question might be, what was Pastor Nate thinking? Where did he find this guy? Uh, is this guy really a preacher? Has he done this before? Well, that's a question that we have to ask about Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We see in the book of Ecclesiastes that the character speaking to us is called in the ESV a preacher. So is this really a preacher? The Hebrew word that's translated as preacher is koheleth. The Greek word that is found in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint is Ecclesiastes. That's where we get the name of the book. Right? But there's other common English translations. Teacher, teacher of the assembly. I think both of those are pretty good. There's spokesman, philosopher, convener, collector, quester, assembler. Most of those aren't very good, in my opinion. But how did they come to those conclusions? How, how did they come up with these assembler and collector interpretations? And is preacher the best interpretation? Well, I would answer that question by saying, Yes, I think preacher is the best way to render this in English, but it's okay to disagree. There's a reason why many English translations just say koheleth. They just transliterate the Hebrew into English, or they do that with Ecclesiastes. They just call it the words of, the, of, of Ecclesiastes, the son of David, right? Because it's hard to really know for sure. But here's what you need to understand about this word koheleth. The Hebrew root word for it means to gather, to collect, or to assemble. So you could see why people would land on a translation like assembler or collector. But here's the thing. It's not just any old type of collector. There's a particular context behind this concept. Like, let me give you an example. If one man gathers and collects baseball cards and another man gathers and collects sheep, the second guy is known as what? A shepherd. The first guy is a sports nerd, right? Do you see the difference? I could say that because I feel like I am one. I'd rather watch sports documentaries than actual games. This word koheleth is, is connected. The root word is about the gathering and assembling of people who come together for a particular purpose, and that is worship. So koheleth is giving godly wisdom here to God's assembled people. I mean, even, even the Septuagint word Ecclesiastes clues us into this translation of teacher of the assembly or preacher because Ecclesiastes is derived from the root word ecclesia, which is the word used in the New Testament for church. And it's not talking about the church building. No, it's talking about the congregation, the assembly of Christians gathered to worship in the name of Jesus. Right? So, and who talks in the, the most in, in a congregation that's gathered to worship the Lord? Right? It's usually the, the teaching pastor right? the, or the preacher. So I think preacher is a, a really good translation here. I'll be referring to him throughout the sermon series of Ecclesiastes as the preacher. And that's going to get a little weird because I'm up here preaching and I'll say things like, the preacher wants you to know this. And you're like, is he talking about himself in the third person? <laughs> this is odd. That's not what I'm doing. I'm referring to Koheleth. I'm referring to this character in this book that is preaching to us. How does he preach? What's his style? What's his format? Right? Uh, there's guys that just kind of stay, you know, their style is to stay right here in the pulpit. They never leave the pocket. And then there's other guys like Harry Reader that just kind of paces back and forth. When he was alive, he would pace back and forth on the stage for an hour, and you just get never, never get tired of it. He was such a, a magnificent preacher. So how does this guy preach? Well, he draws heavily from the book of Genesis. You'll notice throughout this book, there's the themes of creation and goodness, temptation, the fall, toil as a result of the curse, men oppressing other men, men calling upon the Lord. Men living, having offspring, and then dying. He's drawing very heavily from the first five, book, five chapters of the Bible. He also uses this particular pattern. Inclusio, which I know that sounds like 
that sounds like a word from a J.K. Rowling novel. But he uses inclusio, and then he begins to explain himself, and then he applies. I explained this last week. Inclusio is a literary device where the first words of a character in a story that he, that he utters are also his last words. Right? So he opens and closes his sermon with the exact same words. Chapters 1 through 10 are his explanation of his idea that all is vanity. And then chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 7, is his application. Guys preach that way today. They give you the big idea. They close with the big idea. They do all their explaining first, and then they apply it all at the very end. Right? So this, there's, as Solomon would say, there's nothing new under the sun. Right? Long before uh, English-speaking preachers began preaching that way, Solomon laid out his sermon to us in Ecclesiastes in that exact same manner. The preacher uses satire for secularism, and he calls us to self-knowledge. Leland Riken, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, said that this book is a satiric attack. And Derek Kidner tells us what the target is. It's secularism. Right? The, the target is any society or culture that is on a mad quest for knowledge, wealth, pleasure, work, fame, or sex. Basically, what Koheleth is doing, what the preacher is doing, is he said, I've chased the secular life. Let me tell you how empty that is. And he launches this kind of onion, Babylon B-esque attack upon secularism. He takes on our false gods one by one, our false cultural lords, one after the other. And he shows us the foolishness of making good things ultimate things. The preacher's launching an attack on the temporal things that we have in our clutches. Remember last week, I described the preacher as kind of this grandfatherly figure right? Grandparents, they see their sweet little, you know, chubby-handed toddlers, and like, what do you got there, sweetie? And like, in their death grip is something dangerous, right? And their sticky PBJ-covered hands, something dangerous that they shouldn't have. <laughs> and then the grandparent is like, oh, let me just take that away from you very, very gently and carefully. That's what Solomon's doing for us. He sees all these false gods in our, our sweet little adorable hands. He's like, no, 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 let me take those from you. Let, let me show you why you need to let go of those, See, by studying this book, the things of the earth will grow strangely dim. And our grip upon those things will be loosened. What about self-knowledge? What about this call to self-knowledge? What is that business? Well, the very first section of the very first chapter of Calvin's Institutes. Like, this is how Calvin, as he's writing to, uh, he's writing his great theological treatise to a French king. This is how he opens book one, chapter one, section one. Our wisdom insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to, to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. For in the first place, no man can survey himself without forthwith turning his thoughts toward the God in whom he lives and moves, because it is perfectly obvious that the endowments which we possess cannot possibly be from ourselves. Our very being is nothing else than subsistence in God alone. What he's saying is that the sum of true wisdom is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. He, he teases that, that out. He teases out the effects of knowing ourselves and the effect that that has on knowing God. He goes on to describe, just a paragraph later, the miserable ruin of humanity because of Adam's sin. 
And he talks about how that ruin, the ruin of the fall, compels mankind to turn our eyes towards God. You see, most books in the Bible draw our attention to the vast ocean of the redemptive work of God. And they say, now that you've seen the ocean, follow the rivers inland and look at how this impacts you. But what Ecclesiastes does is the opposite. It says, hey, come here, look at these streams. Look at all of these streams. Now let's follow it out to the sea. See, Ecclesiastes has this focus on our lives as creatures. And as we do so, we learn more about our creator. Right? The book of Ecclesiastes is not about, it's not an account of redemption, but rather it's calling us to ponder how we live life as redeemed people in a fallen world. And so as we explore our understanding of ourselves and the world in which we live, as we explore, as Calvin put it, self-knowledge, as we gain self-knowledge, we learn more about the creator. The preacher is helping us to understand God by helping us see what a glorious ruin we truly are as human beings. He's focusing our attention on our common humanity, and in doing so, he's turning our eyes to our creator. Now, who is this preacher? There could be no doubt that the preacher is Solomon. And there's two good versions of this. The first version is that the character Kohelet, the character the preacher, is Solomon, and Solomon is also the author of the book. So he's kind of, he's kind of using a literary device to kind of put this, this you know, true but somewhat fictionalized version of himself in the text to make a literary point, to help us, uh, to help us get where we need to go. And there's evidence of this in the book itself. It's described that the preacher is the son of David. And everybody that's given that particular title, that particular construct of the Hebrew language there in the Old Testament, it always points to direct biological sons of David. Right? And it tells us that this is king in Jerusalem. So the preachers, again, this is the preacher king. You've heard of the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, but have you heard of the preacher king? That's who's speaking to us here in Ecclesiastes. And it says he's king in Jerusalem. Well, there's only one person that fits that description. A son of David who was king in Jerusalem, and that's Solomon. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 16, and chapter 2, verse 9, tells us that the one speaking to us was a man of surpassing wisdom. We find out at the end of the book, this is the man who wrote the Proverbs. And if this is the case, this is indeed not just the character Solomon, but the, the author is Solomon. It means he wrote between 940 and 930 B.C. right before his death. What it means is if Solomon is the author of this book, that he, after turning from the Lord and living a life of, of, of basically uh, secularism, of hedonism, of, of pursuing a life apart from fearing God, it means that he turned back towards the Lord, he repented, and this is his memoir of a life that was not lived well. This was the predominant view until the Protestant Reformation. The first person in, in church history to really openly challenge that Solomon is the author was Martin Luther, right? It wasn't some like 19th or 20th century liberal scholar. It was the great reformer, Martin Luther. And there's reasons why he and other very orthodox godly men have, have doubted that Solomon was the author. There could be no doubt that Koheleth is Solomon, that the preacher is meant to be seen in a literary sense as the character Solomon. But what some people believe is that this wasn't written until the 5th to 3rd century B.C. by some unnamed scribe or author that the Holy Spirit inspired to write. Solomon is then, in this version, a persona to get God's point across to us. 
And people believe that Solomon could not have written this because they see in the Hebrew, they see loan words from Persian, which did not exist in the 10th century BC when Solomon was writing. So some people have gone so far as to say, look, if Solomon wrote this, there's no history of the Hebrew language. Well, the pushback on that point would be this. I have a 21st century uh, updated version of the Pilgrim's Progress in my office. No one would read that book and say, John Bunyan didn't write this because all of this language is too modern. This version of English is, is too updated. These phrases didn't exist when John Bunyan was writing. No, you would look at that book and you would say, oh, John Bunyan wrote this. And someone along the way, in order to help readers understand what John Bunyan was saying, they've updated the language. Well, that's often the way the, the, the scrolls would, would work in Hebrews. As they're passing it down, you know, five, uh, six centuries later, the scribes are looking at this going, we don't talk like this anymore. If we read this out loud, this is not going to make sense to our people. This is how we communicate these ideas today, right? So it's quite possible that the reason that there's Persian loan words and loan words from other languages is because scribes were updating the book of Ecclesiastes to help their audience understand it. Whatever the case might be, the preacher king is an instrument of God. This character, this Solomonic mantle has utility. Right? If there was ever a man in the Old Testament that had it all, who would it be? Uh, maybe, maybe you'd say Job, Job before he lost it all, but Solomon. right? He got every single merit badge possible in life. Wisdom, women, money, infrastructure, peace, prosperity, political clout, pleasure, so on and so forth. If he was a Boy Scout, like the, the whole thing is just loaded, right? He's, have you ever seen those shirts? The, the guys that got every single merit badge possible? The shirt is just one giant patch at the end. <laughs> like they're just wearing it. Put on your patch, right? That's, put on your quilt. It's no longer a shirt. That's Solomon, right? He did it all. So no matter who the actual author is, Solomon's life is being used to make a spiritual and practical point. Who better than Solomon to sit us down on the back porch, to look out over the river, to pass us a cup of coffee, and to begin to explain to us, this is what life is really worth living for. The human author does not matter. What matters is that God is speaking to his people through his word, and he's using this character to do it. Martin Luther, who denied that Solomon was the author, he thought this book was so important that we should read from Ecclesiastes every day. And his reasoning for that was, look, if you're reading Ecclesiastes every day, your faith, your piety, your spirituality is going to be tethered to the here and now. You're not just going to be floating off into high-minded thoughts and ideals. You're not, you're not going to be able to live in some sort of big brain theological ivory tower if you're reading Ecclesiastes on a daily basis. So what is Solomon saying about life? What is this preacher king trying to communicate to us? Well, there are two phrases that he uses in this book nearly 40 times each, and he uses them both in the first three verses. Under the sun and hevel, which is translated in the ESV as vanity. Under the sun is much easier to translate and to interpret. Uh, this phrase refers to life this side of eternity. It's life under the sun that you experience with your five senses, sight, taste, touch, sound, smell, right? Life under the sun is the life that we experience here and now. But Hevel is much more challenging to interpret as well. Here's the difference between translating and interpreting. How many of you have seen the new movie, uh, The Covenant, with Jake Gyllenhaal? I haven't seen it. I have only saw the trailer. I'm not recommending it. I, I have no idea if it's good or bad. But in the trailer, 
there's this soldier that's over in the Middle East. And he, he reminds his interpreter, look, your job, you're just to follow me and translate for me. He says, no, 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 my job is not to translate for you. My job is to interpret. Translating tells you what they said. Interpreting tells you what they meant. And that's what I'm here for, right? So what happens as we're going through the Bible is if, is if we don't get the translation right, it hinders us as we try to interpret. So here's some common translations that you'll find in English versions of Hevel. Futility of futilities. Absolute futility. Futile. Useless. Perfectly pointless. Utterly pointless. No use. Meaningless. Vanity of vanities, as the ESV puts it. I don't like any of those. This might be the only time you'll hear me say this this year, but I actually like what the message translation says. Smoke. Nothing but smoke. That's pretty good. Dr. Benjamin Shaw uh, translates it this way in his commentary on Ecclesiastes. Most vaporous. Most vaporous, everything is vapor. That's my preferred translation. See, what he's, what he's saying there, what he, the way he's interpreting this, the way he's translating it, is that the repetition of hevel is meant to be taken as a superlative. I've mentioned this before in other, uh, other Old Testament books. They're, in the Hebrew, it'll say something like gold of golds. That's a nonsensical phrase, isn't it? Nobody talks that way. What is that? It's gold of golds. <laughs> no, what, what, what is that meaning? Well, it means pure gold. Right? That's how the Hebrew language would communicate that this is a high-quality gold. Right? What do the angels say about our God? That he's holy? No, that he's holy, holy, holy. They're saying he is as holy as it gets. This is the highest superlative of holiness that we can grant to a, a being. Right? So that's what's happening here. He's not saying something nonsensical. He's saying that there, this is as, as fleeting as smoke, as mist, as vapor can be. It's more than just your average level of fleetingness. Vapors are fleeting. They're not solid. You cannot keep them or hold on to them easily. And so I think smoke or mist or vapor works the best, it's particularly in light of the fact that there's six exhortations in the book to fear God, and there's 51 references to good and goodness. Does it really make sense to describe all of life as totally meaningless if you're then going to use the word good and goodness 10 more times than you use the word meaningless? Can he really be saying that everything is totally futile? Those of you that are big Star Trek fans, you're familiar with the phrase, you know, resistance is futile. It's pointless. Is he really describing a life that is utterly pointless if he's then using this concept of good and goodness more often than he uses the concept of meaninglessness? I think not. And later on, he uses the phrase striving after the wind in connection to hevel. I think what he's saying is it's like striving after the wind and trying to catch vapor. Have you ever tried to grab smoke? Have you ever had a fog rolling through the field outside your house and you went up and you're like, I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to grab that and hold on to it, right? There was, a, there was a running back that played in my, my hometown when I was in high school. We never had to play him, thank goodness. He ended up playing for the Alabama Crimson Tide in 2009 when they defeated Florida in the SEC championship and, uh, and defeated Texas for the national championship. His name was Roy Upchurch. And my high school football coach used to say, man, tackling that guy is like tackling smoke. 
because he would just he wasn't the biggest guy and he wasn't the fastest guy, but he could move side to side so quickly. He'd be there and someone would reach out to tackle him and he would just step to the side and he'd just be gone. Right? He's there, you can see him, but you reach out to grab him and you come up with nothing. That's what it's like to grab smoke, right? You ever you know, had a kitchen fire and you're like, I'm going I'm to try to wrangle all this in and get it out of the house. That doesn't work. The Septuagint word that's used in place of hevel, part of its range of meaning is transientness, frailty. So I think what's being communicated here with hevel is that Life is fleeting in a temporal world. Life is transient. It's frail. James says something similar in James chapter 4. You do not know what, to, what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The psalmists say something similar in chapter 78 verse 33 and chapter 39 verse 5 of the psalms. We're reminded that we are merely a breath. We're a mist that vanishes at dawn. Life is fleeting. Things are fleeting in a temporal world. Uh, I love mowing the lawn. I hate mowing the lawn in August. I'm so thankful that August is in the rearview mirror because you mow the lawn, and then three days later, you know, you get done with all the edging, all the weeding. You, you maybe, if it's dry enough, because it never seems to be dry enough in August because it rains all the time, you bag up the clippings, right? And you, the lawn looks great. And then three days later, you're like, did I even mow? Am I going crazy, right? Your wife says, where are you going? Going back outside to mow the lawn. You just did that. I know. Hevel, right? The boys are excited. They're putting their boots. Woohoo! We're mowing the lawn again. You know, they're excited about it. Free lawnmower rides. That's life under the sun. The sound system, it was all great a month ago. And then last Sunday, it was like the speakers were like the toys from Toy Story. They got down when no one was looking and they conspired against us, right? That's Hevel. You get everything done. Kids, you experience this. You build the great magnet tile tower of, 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 you know, Eiffel Tower, right, to scale even. You're like, it's amazing. And then the toddler in your house wakes up from the nap, oh, you know, it's all gone. Another aspect of the word hevel is this. Life is frustrating in a fallen world. Things don't last. Things are frustrating. Sometimes we don't even get the lawn mode because what happened to me six weeks ago, the, the belt just broke. And then I went into Lowe's, and it was like someone had taken the belts out of the right boxes and done this. And I was like, which one is this? You know, that's Hevel. So then next time you go to a hardware store, Hevel. Where are you going, sweetheart? Hevel. Going to Ace Hardware. Again? Yes. Romans 8.20 talks about how creation was subjected to, and I know it's translated as futility. Once again, don't think that's a great translation of that word. Because creation in the fall was not subjected to pointlessness. It was subjected to what? Frustration. You're frustrated with creation as you're trying to exercise dominion. Guess what? Creation, because of Adam's sin, because of your sin, it's frustrated too. This is our fallen condition in this world. What's being addressed in the book of Ecclesiastes with the, the phrase under the sun and with the word hevel is the fleeting and frustrating nature of life in our world. You know, we're Presbyterian, so we don't really say amen during sermons. We just go, hmm, hmm. There'll be multiple times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes where we just go, hmm, oh, that hurts because it's so true. Right? Why is he saying all these things? 
Is he trying to bum us out? <laughs> like, what's his goal here? Because every, every pastor, every preacher, we have a goal. We, we want something to happen inside of our people as we preach. We want the Holy Spirit to be at work. You know, as the Puritans used to say, we're trying to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable as we preach. What, what is he trying to do? Is he trying to bum everybody out that's having a better time than him? No, no, no. That's not what he's saying at all. Ecclesiastes is pointing us to a gain that is beyond our work. Verse 3 is not saying, look, your work is fleeting and frustrating, so just stay at home and get that check from the government. You might as well. What's the point? That's not what he's saying. He's pointing us to a gain that is beyond our own work. Some people can't accept anything they didn't earn. Like some people, they just can't accept a, a gift, grace, mercy, Christian love, you know, Christian charity. It just it weirds them out. They feel like they have to pay you back somehow. S- some people can't imagine that there's any reward beyond this life. Some people live as if Whoever dies with the most toys wins. Some people live as if there's no reward or no judgment beyond this life. Some people, they're super faithful, they're super godly, and yet there just seems to be no earthly reward. There seems to be no momentum, no traction gained by the endeavors for the kingdom that they've undertaken. Some people, they're caught up in the moment. There's no planning for the the next generation. They're not planning to leave an inheritance for their children, let alone their children's children. What the preacher wants us to live for is a gain greater than we can obtain here and now. This is how we navigate life. We live for a greater reward. Ecclesiastes also points us beyond the sun for greater meaning. I can remember years ago, I mean, probably every preacher in the entire English-speaking world, used this as an illustration 15 years ago. Uh, when he was in his late 20s, Tom Brady had won three Super Bowls. He was married to the most, you know, what magazines had labeled the most beautiful uh, woman in the world. Right? He had it all, and he's there on 60 Minutes, and he's sobbing. And he's sobbing because he's thinking, he's saying out loud, for all the world to see, there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be something else out there. There's got to be more. I mean, you think about it. He was so great at that time, he could have retired from football at age 29 or 30, five years later been eligible for the Hall of Fame, been a first ballot Hall of Famer, and at 36 come back to the NFL and won more Super Bowls as an already Hall of Fame quarterback. And he couldn't find his meaning beyond football. Makes his family a promise, I'm done after this season. It doesn't end the way he wants it to. So he changes his mind like two weeks later, comes back for one more season. That was the final straw, he blew up his marriage. Michael Jordan, if you've seen the Netflix uh, documentary, The Last Dance, won a national championship as a freshman in North Carolina, went six for six in the NBA Finals. None of the NBA Finals he played in ever made it to a Game 7 because he and the, the Chicago Bulls were so great. And yet here he is in this documentary series, looking back at all these old rivalries from the, old, from the 1980s. He's still holding on to those grudges. Every time he gives a speech in public, it just it's like he can't... It's like he can't let go of the fact that he's not in the NBA anymore. It's sad. But we do this too. We're tempted to do this as well, aren't we? We're tempted to find our identity, our meaning in our spouse, our kids, our job, our business, our stuff, our home, 
our team, our town, our legacy, our reputation, our career. But what happens when those things are over? What happens if those things are taken from you suddenly? What's your purpose? What's your identity? What meaning do you have in this life? You see how devastating that is? What if you lose those things? Who are you? See, what the preacher's trying to do is he, he's trying to take our eyes beyond the sun. He wants us to look beyond the sun for a purpose and meaning that is not fleeting. If your identity is in Christ, if you understand that your chief end, your chief purpose as a human being is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, that can't be taken from you because God cannot be taken. God is not fleeting. God is steadfast and sure. God cannot be shaken. Even when it feels like the whole world is crumbling around you, God is steadfast. His steadfast love endures forever. This isn't verbatim, but it was C.S. Lewis who said, if we find that nothing on this earth can satisfy us, we must conclude that we are made for a different world. That's what Ecclesiastes is partially about. The preacher is trying to help you understand you're made for something more. Look at this life around you. It's good. There's good aspects of it, but it's not the ultimate thing. I alluded to this earlier, but this book is in some sense the memoir of a man who wants to communicate the fleeting and frustrating nature of living a life that is not built on fearing God and keeping his commandments. Right? Solomon was wise. He was faithful. And then he turned from the Lord and started living contrary to the ways of God. And this book is his reflection about the futility, the frustration, the, the fleeting nature of building a life that way. Dr. Benjamin Shaw put it this way. What does Hevel represent? It represents that which is passing, insubstantial, fleeting. That which is passing can also disappoint or frustrate. So Hevel can be used to refer to idols, which can never deliver on their promises. Hevel represents that which is passing or temporary. John Calvin wrote that the human heart is an idol factory. And what we do, what that factory does, is it takes in all these good gifts from the gift giver, from the creator, and we make these good things ultimate things. The good things come in like raw materials, and we make them into tiny little gods for us to worship. And these things are hevel. They disappoint. They frustrate. Because when we turn them into gods, we, we try to make them something that, they're never, that they, they were never designed to be or to do. The preacher king is tethering us to the here and now by pointing us beyond our work for earthly gain and beyond the sun for ultimate purpose and meaning. This grandfatherly figure, this great uncle Solomon with a wealth of experience is using a sort of process of elimination to help us see what we're really made for. Here's this. No, you're not made for that. Here's this. It's good, but it's not God. Here's this. This is really wonderful, but it makes a terrible idol. And he struggles in this book. You'll hear him as we read the passages. He struggles and he wrestles with us as we learn. And he does this in order to teach us how we ought to live. Here, here's the big idea I have for you this morning. We live well down here by looking beyond this world. 
The hymn I mentioned last week says this, All you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist, it vanishes at dawn. And what does it say next? I left this part off last Sunday. All glory be to Christ. My head football coach used to say, in high school, he used to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We live this life well down here on the earth, under the sun, by looking beyond the sun. We are to lay up our treasure in heaven. And the first thing that we're to seek in this life is the kingship of God in Christ and his righteousness. The New Testament passage that we read earlier, that's from the Sermon on the Mount, which is full of very helpful instruction in how we're to navigate this life as God's people. And in the very middle of this practical instruction for how we're to live as God's fallen people in a fallen world, Jesus grounds what he's saying to his disciples by calling us to lay up or store our treasure in heaven. And in doing so, he says, that's where your heart is. Jesus wasn't some sort of Gnostic, right? He wasn't taking some sort of position that the physical, temporal world is all terrible and God hates it. Jesus isn't taking the position that we're just, just to survive the physical life and wait until we're finally free from the physical realm. Jesus never teaches that we are spirits or souls trapped in a body. We are both body and soul. We are embodied people, embodied souls. Part of redemption is the redemption of the physical and temporal world. The creation that was subjected to frustration in the fall of Adam. Creation is looking forward to the day in which the adoption of the sons of God will be completed. And by calling us to seek first the kingdom of heaven, that is the kingship that is from heaven, Jesus is not saying that we have no other concerns, that we have no other problems, that we have no other needs. He's saying that our eyes should be fixed upon the Lord for provision, for purpose, for guidance, for meaning. The shepherd, the good shepherd, is calling us to navigate life in a fallen world according to his standard. But he's also reminding us of this. The way that we live well down here is by grounding our lives in the reality of our heavenly home and the reality of the king who rules it all. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray.